Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the stored story with my friend, Sean Henry. How's it going, Sean? It's going great. Thanks for having me today, Joe. I'm very excited to have you on because I've had many friends over the last, I don't know, six months or years say, oh, you got to have... You got to have the stored guys on. You got to have the stored guys on. So you are one of the stored guys. Uh, before we go any further, why don't you introduce yourself and your company? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of the stored guys. Co-founded Store about six years ago with my my co-founder and CTO Jacob Boudreaux, who's leads our technology organization, and we're we're both based here out of Atlanta, Georgia. But uh, a little bit about myself. My, my name is Sean Henry. I'm the the co-founder and, and CEO at Store and. What we do at Stored, our, our mission is ultimately to make supply chains a competitive advantage for, for our customers. And by that, I really mean for brands of all sizes. When you look at today's supply chains, supply chains are the new competitive battleground. And today's expectations with the customer are set by the leaders, the Amazons and the Walmarts. And it's been proliferated by the rise of omni-channel shopping that have placed immense pressure on businesses to maintain a nimble and efficient supply chain across more channels than ever. And so what that means for retailers is delivering a consumer a prime-like experience with their shipments arriving in two days, next day, or or even sooner sometimes. And for B2B companies, having the flexibility to deliver their goods on time and in full wherever the customer is and and, and the fast and, and low transportation cost. And while some of the retail behemoths like an Amazon have invested tens of billions in building out their own logistics networks over the past decades, and they enjoy massive economies of scale. All of these other brands are stuck with a patchwork of disconnected 3PLs that they have to piece together, warehouses, fulfillment centers, trucking companies, and creating logistics networks that are they're inflexible, expensive, and, and oftentimes opaque because whenever you go open that new warehouse, you have to go find a warehouse management system, an order management system or more to deploy and connect back to your ERP or your shopping cart. And so it creates this this opaque system that leads to slower packages, higher prices, but ultimately a less competitive supply chain. And so at Store, what we do is is we're a cloud supply chain platform enabling companies to compete and grow with world-class logistics. We combine both the physical logistics network to move a company's inventory from the port to the porch. So that's bulk warehousing, B2C fulfillment, bulk freight, FTL and LTL, and also last mile delivery. But we combine that all under one central platform for visibility and hundreds of B2B and B2C companies like Body Armor, Advanced Auto Part, Dollar General, and more use us to, to make their supply chain perform with the speed, flexibility, and, and ease of, of the cloud by doing it in a single and integrated platform that's available when and where the company needs it. Very nice. Very nice. So before we get into more about Stored. I want to understand where you grew up, where you went to school, and what were you like as a kid? It's a a great question. I'd have to ask my siblings to to answer maybe, but no. So I grew up in Atlanta. You you don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, uh, I don't know if this is on any podcast. This may be a revelation, but I'm I'm one of five. So I'm a a triplet myself. I have uh, two sisters my age and uh, two older, a brother and a sister. So very, very loud house as as a kid. I guess I could start there. But 
grew up in Atlanta, kind of just north of the city, been here my whole life, uh, traveled a lot for, for school, for work, for other things, but I've always been based out of Atlanta. Uh, I currently live in Midtown. I've been here since I, since I went to Georgia Tech. What was I like as a kid? Grew up, played a lot of different sports from, from, from baseball to basketball were my two favorites. I, I used to say, like any kid, there was a, there was a time where MLB was my, my only career path <laughs> I would have ever imagined, but I don't think I was unique in that. But always really focused on just creating things and business. It was always my, my passion. And, and I always grew up saying that it wasn't a specific business necessarily. I just loved creating something from nothing. So when I played baseball in, in middle school, uh, I quite literally still, still to this day remember I drew out designs for a different wooden baseball bat. I sourced a company in, in China that I thought could manufacture it with my parents helping me along the way. Never quite got it to full production, but just a small example of starting small websites, trying to launch new products. And ultimately, my, my first business or, or anything, I started buying and reselling electronics online in, in middle school, buying broken inventory off of, or sorry, before that, in, in fourth grade, started buying broken computers off of Craigslist, fixing them myself, and then reselling them on eBay in the, in the early 2000s. And terrifying my parents along the way, who uh, asking them to connect their bank account to, to PayPal and eBay, drive me to to pick up broken computers from people I met online, and uh, they were just immensely supportive uh, uh, along the way, and, and always pushing me to go try new things. And so, got get started in that regard really young, and and have been uh, pushing to to keep innovating and doing new things ever since. Yeah. So, did you have lots of jobs when you were a kid besides working on your own? It's a good question. So I mostly worked on my own. Um, I did a lot of different things like that. The business that I had the most kind of recurring revenue from the earliest was just repairing computers and phones for families and family friends. And uh, it kind of got me started into the business of, oh, I might actually make more money and be more scalable buying the inventory myself, fixing it and, and reselling it on, online. But funny enough, my, my first actual job was fired after day two. I got a job when I was 14 at Lamborghini Atlanta. I was a huge car fanatic. Nice. And so I used to have my parents drive me after school to, to walk around the dealership almost every day. We didn't have any fancy car and, and I would just drive around or I'd just walk around. And the sales director took, took a chance on me and, and made a bet and, and hired me essentially as his, his intern. And after two days, I got asked to move a car. To which I had to say, I don't have a license. And they quickly realized my, my employment was, was not legal. And, and I was terminated uh, very, very shortly thereafter. But I'll never forget that that two-day stint was, was a dream. Yeah. So this whole series, I, I've been talking to founders. And I, I'm kind of doing it with my friend, Ryan Schreiber, who's doing it under inside the founder studio. And when we started, we eventually we're going to get back together and do a podcast kind of comparing notes because I probably talked to probably, I've probably done six or seven, eight of these interviews. And what's interesting is for the most part, all founders I've talked to started young working and got, had lots of different jobs. Some, a lot of them have seen are very, were very into sports and some are, some say I'm hyper competitive. Were you, you call yourself very competitive or just into it. I would call myself very, very competitive. So starting in, in baseball, I grew up playing my, my whole life. I was a pitcher. I played travel baseball. And uh, ultimately, it was in my, my I think it was in, in eighth grade or ninth grade, I tore my growth plate in my, my elbow uh, pitching. And so I uh, had a cast for eight months, had to go to physical, oh. maybe, that, maybe a little less, but I had to go to physical therapy for a long time. And 
and still to this day, it hurts if I if I throw too much. And so that was that was kind of the end of my my baseball career, and, and jumped over to to basketball, to which played on on our varsity team in high school for all for all, all my high school career, and it was a lot of fun. But uh, ultimately, uh, I was not good enough to quite make the leap into into college or anything thereafter. Yep, it's it's interesting to me, and again, I'm a, a dad myself. My kids are grown, but. I'm a big believer that kids should play sports. Kids should have all sorts of experiences outside of school. And I just think, you know, I think the research is all out there. It is good for them. And I, if I was in king for a day of schools, I would say every single kid is going to play sports. Every single kid is going to be in the choir. Every single kid's going to play an instrument. Every single kid's going to be in a play. Even though like your peer group probably would have said, Oh no, dude, you're not being in the choir. What, what's wrong with you? You're a baseball player. You're, you're a basketball player. And my friends would have kicked my ass if I said, I'm going to be in the choir now. That just wasn't my group, right? Who knows how many great singers there might have been that never were forced to do that. It's true. And again, it's just one more, one more place to get ma- mastery. So anyway, so you're a good student or must have been. You got to Georgia Tech. I'd like to say so. Yeah, I, I ultimately chose Georgia Tech, and, and it, it was a great story because I, I truly wasn't considering Georgia Tech. It was the classic, I've grown up in and around Atlanta, it's it's time to go elsewhere, and got into some great schools. I was very close to going to, to UNC Chapel Hill. I got into to, to Brown, I was I was really considering wow. and, and, and thought it was a great school, and and had a sister that that had went there, and so that, that, that definitely helped, but uh, she was she was very convincing. But ultimately, with in-state scholarships, and I got something called the Dean Scholarship in the, in the undergrad grad business school, I, I could choose to to go go elsewhere, or I could go to college for free and get a great education. And so that mixed with opportunity. We can uh, I'm, we might jump into it later, but I had some really unique work experience. Kind of my summer after high school, and then my first semester, sorry, first year at Georgia Tech, where I was working for this automotive manufacturer called Huoco, and it's really where I saw a lot of these supply chain chain challenges. Leading up to that that job, the summer before college, I was getting to know the CEO of this business for two three years prior, bugging him every single day. I'd love to come work for you. And so when I was putting all the pieces together, I said, I don't want to leave Atlanta, where it's the only place today I have a work opportunity and, and go to a college town I, I've never been in and, and I'll have to start from scratch. I got a tour as part of that Dean Scholarship Program of Tech Square, uh, which is right around Scheller, the, the business school at Georgia Tech, and was told you can take business classes day one. You don't have to wait till your third year. And here's Atlanta Tech Development Center. You can take free classes as a Georgia Tech student on business model canvassing, lean, lean startups, all these different things. And I said, I'd be, a, I'd be a fool to leave and, and not take up this, this great opportunity and uh, immense ROI considering the, the scholarships are more. And so chose Wait. to stay. So how far away is Georgia Tech from Atlanta? Uh, Georgia Tech is right in Midtown. So our office okay. is in, in Midtown, which is five, 10 minutes, uh, two miles from downtown. That. And and uh, Georgia Tech is square in the middle. Our our office is actually today across the street from the business school, and we rent it from the the, the Georgia Tech uh, Foundation. And so it's a uh, uh, it's a great right in the heart of Midtown here, a few minutes from Piedmont Park, which is kind of the the center of Atlanta. Right. John, you also mentioned that you were very persistent ch- chasing down the CEO of a company saying, "I want to work for you," and that was an automotive company. You said, "Yeah, absolutely." And 
You asked a little bit about early life, and I owe a lot of credit to, to my mom, both my mom and my dad. My, my dad's one of my, my heroes. He grew up immensely poor in a trailer park and, and worked at Bell South for 40 years from the time he was 18 to the time he retired. And my mom, is, he, was, he was always kind of a, a business hero of mine and someone I looked up to deeply. And my mom was in PR and communications. And I think the, the best skill she taught me from, being, from a child was she always wanted me to speak for myself and not be afraid to talk to adults and more. And so they moved uh, maybe two years ago out of our childhood house. And uh, we were going through all these items and I found things from her from when I was six, she helped me write a, a letter to, I was very into like production and manufacturing and making things. She helped me write a letter to, to George Lucas asking for advice and asking for how he made different props. I didn't get a reply, but uh, she was always helping me do things like that, reach out to people, network with people, just say, hey, I'm, I'm young, I'm a student, I'm trying to learn. Can I, can I learn from your career? Can I buy you coffee? Can I, can I learn from you? And I think that was just that persistence, but also that kind of willingness to, to outreach and potentially fail oftentimes and not get right. a response was, was critical. Right. And one of the things that seems to be a consistent on my podcast when I talk to founders is that that persistence, that resilience. Because a lot of people would say, yeah, I, uh, I called them and they didn't call me back. And uh, that was it. You know, I guess I'll wait, you know, f find somebody else to talk to. And most people don't want to be that burden. I don't want to be the pain in the ass who keeps calling back. And as a kid, I think, and even as a young person, there's a lot of people who, who don't want to push, who don't want to ask. And I always tell people who are younger in their 20s that, hey, uh, ask. Ask, you know, somebody might have the title of CEO, but that doesn't mean that they forgot what it's like to be you in your age. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, anyone who's been successful, grown in their career, whatever it is, did it off of uh, the backs of others. Oftentimes they had help right. in some way. And uh, you have to you have to know that, acknowledge that and try to pass that on to, right. to the next. Yeah. And also, you know, so if somebody was to reach out to you and now, now people start bothering you, Sean, but if people were to reach out to you, they'd, they'd say, it's not as if you've forgotten what it's like to start a company. You're, you're still fresh in your mind. But also I will say this as a, as a 50 something, I have kids who are grown and working. I know what it's like to want your kid to get their first gig and, and how important it is. And so when somebody says, Oh, I don't want to reach out to that guy because he's, he's too busy. He's got important stuff going on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm always talking to people who ask me. So anyway, exactly. one other thing I wanted to ask you. So you said you're a triplet. So you have two sisters. So you, are you the middle one and the first one, last one? You got it right on. I'm the, I'm the middle one. So do you have that connection where you like a sixth sense with uh, your sisters? Well, we've, we've always tried and, and tried to claim we do. And uh, we, we can't read each other's minds or anything. But uh, there's, there's definitely an, an inherent bond you, you have as a result. Right. Right. So, Sean, let's switch gears here for a second. So tell me, you went to Georgia Tech. What did you study there? Yeah, so I was in the business school studying operations and supply chain management as a concentration undergrad with a, with a minor in finance as well. And I have to admit, I did not graduate. I went there for almost two and a half years. And uh, then I was a Teal Fellow, uh, the Peter Teal program, which uh, essentially pays you to, to leave school and go take your, take your own I've endeavor. I've read about that. I've read about Peter Thiel doing that. So he's encouraging, he's telling young entrepreneurs, don't finish school, start. So tell us a little bit about the Thiel program. I've, I, I never knew that you're part of that. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of go back to my, my background. I started a few different e-commerce businesses first, mostly on 
electronics parts on, on eBay than my own e-commerce store that was, was doing automotive parts. And that's how I met the CEO of that automotive business that I, that I bugged for years to come work for him and closed down my business and, and went and worked at Hyoko and, and had a great uh, experience. But I was two years into Georgia Tech. I was seeing all these supply chain challenges at that company and learning about inventory optimization, network optimization, and different supply chain models you can run. And the biggest challenge I was seeing when trying to go implement those physically was, hey, we're so disconnected on our systems and we're running paper-based processes and our ERP is inaccurate. We're using 18 3PLs across the globe that when they wanted me to reduce our global inventory levels, there's couldn't. The, the data wasn't clear enough, but also we didn't have the processes in place to, to change because we were stuck into these long-term contracts. And so that those are some of the themes that ultimately led me to start Stored. And and I was still a student at the time and, and working out of class. And uh, the first thing I, I think I ran and did was I had read an article one time about the, the Teal Fellowship. I had read Zero to One, Peter Teal's book about starting a new company and starting a new category and creating a new model and so I was really passionate about what, what he was doing. So tell everybody about Peter Thiel, just so give him some background, because um, I, I'm familiar with him, but I don't think everyone else is. Yeah. So, so Peter Thiel originally kind of made his name founding uh, PayPal and leading PayPal for years through its sale. And, and I think the early 2000s, and then has founded a number of great companies. He was the first investor, the very first check into Facebook, for example, he started Palantir, the, the company that went public recently in, in the government software space, and then also has a, an investment firm, Founders Fund, which is now a, a large investor in store. That's a multi-billion dollar fund in the venture capital space that does mid, early and growth stage companies. And so he's just a very uh, highly thought of individual in and around the technology space and, and has created a lot of different category defining companies, uh, both founding them and, and investing in them. Yeah. And, he, you know, it's interesting that the, the PayPal mafia, I've, I haven't read about it lately, but I do remember reading about Elon Musk there. Yeah, and Elon, Peter Elon Thiel. Musk, Peter Thiel. Uh, I'd be embarrassed there's if a I few others. tried to rattle them all off, but there's probably a dozen that have gone on to found some of today's largest wildly successful, Wildly successful. And a lot of them are investors too. So if you look, it's Peter, I think it's spelled T-H-I-E-L, but it's pronounced, I think, Teal, like T-E-A-L. Correct. So you guys, if you, if you get a sec, take a look. That guy's wildly successful. And he's encouraged young entrepreneurial minded people like you to say, skip college, start your damn business. So how did you, did you start the business first or did you reach out to him first? How'd that work? Yeah. So reached out to him. I think the second I, I was really thinking about stored and admittedly didn't hear back. Um, it was it wasn't easy. And so started the business and, and just started going. And I started stored and in our earliest days, spent a year still in school while trying to get the business stood up and, and moving and running until finally I, I did get the Teal Fellowship. And during that year, I was quite literally stepping out of class to take customer support calls, take meetings and, and things like that. And so I think I became my, my teacher's uh, least favorite student. And uh, it was funny, for example, I had a business teacher who was in and around. The class wasn't entrepreneurship, but they taught an entrepreneurial finance class as well. And so I, I had to take him aside once because he had a no computers rule and, and say, hey, I'm doing something entrepreneurial. I cannot not be on my computer sending emails and, and replying during class. <laughs> I, I need to do this. And uh, I got crap from my friend for the rest of the semester on. He tried to pull out his computer once and he took it away till the end of class, I think. And I'd just be sitting there typing away. And uh, 
Uh, I was just trying to make make the best of it and say I I don't want to wait to start, but I'm also not against college. I am I am not uh, one of those individuals uh-huh. who says it's not needed. Nobody needs it. Just go on. I think it's immense. It gives you great experience. Teaches you how to learn, how to work, networking, all sorts of things. But ultimately, story got to the point where we were starting to grow to where I said I could do two things okay or one thing with with all my energy and in and around that time it just happened to coincide with finally getting the teal fellowship and said going all in and then we uh we raised some subsequent capital after that yep so what problem were you trying to solve when you first started stored yeah so i think uh, one of our core values on our team is, is learn and iterate and i say that because we always say there was no like light bulb moment where the exact problem we solved today is what we started or is started right. trying to solve we always just took the next step and, and just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and learning on, on the fly. And so the original problem I saw was I was at Hyoko and they had 23 factories across 19 different countries. We had a few warehouses we owned ourselves, but ultimately we had 18 third-party logistics companies who, who had warehouses for us that could be Kuninagel in Germany, expediters here in the US, different brands globally. And when they asked me to do an inventory optimization, I realized I don't have visibility into what is in each of these facilities. Our local factory manager, plant manager, his team or her team is the one sending the emails and spreadsheets and purchase orders back and forth to tell them what to ship. But at the corporate level, my visibility is not there there at all. And so the first problem ultimately I thought we were going to solve was kind of this digitization of warehouse capacity. I said, we have some of our own warehouses and we're using these 18. Half of these 18, we have three-year contracts with and we've committed to a fixed amount of square footage that we're not using. Same time in our own buildings, some of them are half empty. Some of them are busting at the seams. There has to be an Airbnb, Uber-like way to kind of pull all this capacity online and make it more fluid for brands to access. That was problem one. And then problem two goes back to that inventory optimization question where I said, even if we bring the capacity online, if each and every run of these warehouses runs off a different WMS, and if I'm going to go launch in it, it takes months to integrate to the local WMS, right. put our SKUs and items into them, train the local facility on our products. I can't agilely use capacity in the first place. So it makes sense why the industry is this way. So problem one, can we pull all this capacity online? Problem two, can we connect the software and vertically integrate it more closely to the the use of the physical space itself, where in the traditional industry, supply chain software and supply chain physical logistics are sold separately from different vendors. And so those are really the two two problems we we set out to solve. Right. Well, it's interesting. Before I worked in logistics, I'm an automotive guy, and I remember doing a lot of value stream mapping or something we call it lean. And I did it across Chrysler supply chains. And we would look from order to cash. And I'm sure you probably did some of the same, where you're looking and saying, from the time we get the order to the time we get paid, let's talk about it. And when when I was doing that, one of the things that we would always run into is this inventory optimization. And you don't want to carry too much inventory. And inventory costs are enormous when you look at any anybody in like, like automotive business. So one of the challenges became... You know, what's the right amount of inventory? And when I would do that kind of work, we would go out of our ways to find waste. 
and t- find time. And what's crazy, I always call automotive the biggest, baddest supply chain on earth because you are looking order to cash. And one of the things that I think is challenging when you talk about transportation, logistics, warehousing, all the stuff that we normally are doing in logistics, somebody says, oh, I can give you visibility from the time it moves it from your warehouse, from your warehouse to my factory. You're like, that two days? My supply chain is like 16 weeks long. Like I, it travels all across the world and you're giving me visibility for two days. Good. Thank you. But help me get visibility across my whole supply chain from order to cash because that's where it's at. Yeah, it's an immense end to end supply chain. But you also hit on a, a common trend is you look at every little part, too. I mean, when I started when I started there, we were doing lean management and Six Sigma and more. It was literally film every step a worker takes in the day. Write down every oh, step, how much, how many seconds it takes across eight to 10 hours and go right. just cut, 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 batch. What could we do differently in a different order and more efficiently? And every, every second counts in that uh, right. just massive throughput production environment. Yeah. And I remember all the time. So you know, when you're selling hundreds of thousands of units for one product line, and then you might have a part that goes across millions of vehicles and somebody said, yeah, I saved a penny. You're like a penny on millions of units per year. <laughs> so they add up pretty quick. Nickels exactly. and dimes add up really quick in automotive, not everywhere else. But anyway, yeah, it's a fantastic background to have because I always feel like if you're from automotive, because of the nature of it, you're selling millions of $40,000 products. Operations matters a lot there. And so lean and all those other things that came from there, uh, the Six Sigma. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a Six Sigma guy, but I remember taking the training and I remember thinking, you know what? I got to get out of here. This is somebody else's deal. I, I know how to use it, but it was just not my thing. <laughs> they use yeah. this, I always say they use a, a different language that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me, as, as we talked about earlier, I'd kind of always, even from a young age, taken the very start it yourself entrepreneurial path. And right. so the only job I had for an extended period of time was that and doing that repetitive observation and efficiency task is, is not exactly in the entrepreneur blood. And so uh, I was there and, and I loved it. And uh, it was the foundation for a lot of what we do here at Stored, but uh, was 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 itching to go take the learnings and, and start something new to, right. to innovate and improve. So you're at Georgia Tech, you and your, did your partner, did he start at the same time you did, your CTO? So, yeah, so I was, we got to know each other for about six months, right at the same time that I was seeing a lot of these problems. I think I mentioned earlier, there's a place called Atlanta Technology Development Center, ATDC, and it's a state-sponsored incubation space that holds classes and things like that. And we met each other one time and, and he had a very similar entrepreneurial upbringing to me, but he had, I'd gone deep on the business side and had to do enough techno, technical setting my own websites, e-commerce stores and more right. to appreciate it. He had had to do a little bit of the business side, but was very, very technical and, and was a developer. And so we kind of hit it right off. We're the same age, grew up very, very close to each other, uh, had a very similar kind of always testing new businesses. And I was ideating on it with him for for quite a few months. And uh, we, we launched, I think the first step we took was uh, October 2015 and then kind of really started pushing store forward uh, at the beginning, mid of 2016. So, so you're the hustler and he's the hacker. If they would have put you guys in that category, right? Yeah, this the the fast explanation and pretty accurate, <laughs> right? So, who was your first customers? Yeah, it's a great question. Our first customers. So, when we set out, we're both a physical logistics network and the software to to help a brand manage it. And 
there's kind of a zero to one question of what do you build first and, and how do you build it and for who? And so the first thing we did was let's go see if warehouses will even be a part of this platform. Well, the 3PL work with us to move inventory for stores, customers using our software, our pricing, our processes and be part of our network. And so we cold called, we talked earlier about uh, Ted Alling and, and the, the guys at Dynamo, um, an am amazing venture capital firm focused on supply chain, but Ted Alling had started Access America Transport, a freight brokerage that was all cold calling outbound. So he said, go get in a room and call 500 warehouses. We spent a week uh, trying to get to that number until we finally did. And we said, okay, all of these warehouses say they'd work with us. And, and we're saying, we'll drive you new revenue. You'll be part of a bigger network. We'll help you with technology and we'll push you more customers. And so it's not the warehouse, it's the customer who we have to go to go win over and say why our network is better than them just sourcing 3PLs themselves. And so we didn't have software from square one. We said, let's build software around what our customers need. And, and we're starting to build it at that point. And so the value prop we had for our first customers was ultimately the network itself in, the, in that we had negotiated with these warehouses to be part of a network where we could use them more flexibly. We could give national pricing different by market to our customer and, and guarantee service levels. And so our first customers were Chinese-based importers. Our, our very first customer was a publicly traded solar manufacturer in China who said, <laughs> we don't know anything about where we should put inventory around the LA port, around the the port of Oakland and around the port of Savannah, can you guys help us and, and help? We, we don't even have operations teams online the same hours your warehouses are working. Can you manage them for us? And so uh, we, we got started that way, built our software around some of those first customers around the inventory and order management they needed, the, the tracking from SKUs to lots and more they needed and, and just started uh, going from there. So this is kind of a different business model. So you went to existing warehouses and you said you have excess space. And and when I say warehouses, it's third-party logistics companies. And you said you have extra space. And they said, yeah, we've got some. I think some, most of them do, right? And you said, if I fill it up, will you manage it, manage it using my software? Exactly. We essentially said, I mean, if you, if you look at the industrial real estate reports, if you're a third-party logistics company, you can go lease that building and it's 100% occupied. But as a logistics company, it's your job to fill it with customers' products. And so when you look at the 3PL market, it's massively fragmented. There's over 14,000 buildings in the US that operate as third-party public warehouses uh, from fulfillment or B2B. 4,000 of those are owned by 52 companies, your XPO, your, your lineage logistics, your FedEx. The other 10,000 are massively fragmented. So rather than go own all the warehouses ourselves, especially, especially when we're trying to give the customer flexibility right. of put your inventory where you need it, we said, let's go to the existing kind of mid-market 3PLs who are best in class in operations in their, in their respective cities, who know pricing and customers and more inside out and say, hey, if you were part of a national network and we could drive you more revenue, you could use our software to augment your operations and you could have 50 customers through stored, but you're only dealing with stored. Would you be part of that? And they said, absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Um, and, and so we've been building that network of, of partners for the last five years. And we have great operations to the point where these warehouses let us come in and do industrial engineering and say, what do you need to, to hit this throughput for this, this massive e-commerce volume this season, for example? And it's very, very deep integrated partnerships with these 3PLs. Yeah. And I think, and I've, I talked to a lot of warehousing companies on my podcast. And one of the things I've heard different one of them talk about is that a lot of, I think the vast majority of people who own a warehouse own one <laughs> and, yeah. they, and it might be in Chicago, it might be in 
Indianapolis. So if you had one, said I, I have one location, I always have read that the very best location would be somewhere in Indiana because it's one day from 65%, one day travel to 65% of the country, 65% of the population. But it's not one day to California. It's not one day to Texas, right? So people argue that it might be. But, <laughs> but anyway, getting back to that, the challenge they have is when somebody who says, I need national distribution, and they say, I can't participate in national distribution. I'm outside of that because I'm, I'm one location. So if you have to be same day, next day for the whole country, you can't do that from one location. Exactly. So they need they need that network. Yeah. And what that means for the warehouse is that you're getting the smaller, local, more challenging or other customer versus the biggest customer, the cleanest freight, the largest volume, because they right. they need the nationwide network. And so when you participate with Stored, you're able to kind of come up market to these, these bigger customers a lot of times as the 3PL and just generally cleaner, higher volume through, through right. your building. And so right. you're spot on. Yeah. And so you want to work with a, a, one of the larger CPGs, right? And, and in a lot of ways, those larger CPGs have their act together. They have their, they know what they're, uh, they're going to sell in that region. So their inventory is cleaner. You're not going to have a whole bunch of, you know, obsolete parts that you're saying, Hey, when, when are you going to move this? <laughs> and, yeah, uh, exactly. The slow movers, you don't make any money on in a lot of cases of in these warehouses. So to your point, all of a sudden they, can have access to national CPGs, big big CPGs that are good to work with, and they don't have to work just with the local guys. So you give them the, the warehouse that kind of a national, and for the customers, they get this cool system. Then they said, I don't have to go around the country. First off, I don't have to go and work with the largest company in the world, you know, the largest guys who have that footprint nationally. I have the option to work with some local warehouses if that's the direction I want to go. Exactly. I think when you look Locals at the, connected. the shipper, <laughs> yeah, when you when you look at the shipper side, the the brands, they look at stored and they say, okay, I don't have to go piece together my own local three PLs. I don't have to go to the XPOs who fifty seven percent of their contracts, I believe it is, are three year plus volume based agreements with six month setup times and high overhead fees and more. I still want the flexibility of a local public warehouse that I can quickly ship volume into, get a clean price and, and launch tomorrow. And so they come to store and they say, okay, I can integrate to my, my ERP or my order management system to stored software once, or I can just jump in stored software and do it myself. And I can access your entire network from there. And my item master, my order management, all of it flows through seamlessly. And I can put five pallets in, in Dallas tomorrow, or I could put 5,000 pallets in Los Angeles the next day. This enables me with, with flexibility, but I'm also getting one consistent software, one consistent logistics team at stored, one consistent pricing model, and one consistent person to guarantee the service levels. Because at the end of the day, stored is the one that says to our customer, we're going to hit this inventory accuracy. We're going to have these cutoff times across the network. We're going to do this. And right. uh, it's a lot You're of coordination, but it provides that, yeah, it provides that consistency on both sides. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, you're like a third-party logistics company or freight broker where you say, I've built the network of warehousing companies, and I'm fully responsible for the coordinating, making sure we get the desired results for your shippers, your customers. Exactly. And I think you've seen that model for a long time in the freight space and freight brokerage because, to be frank, it's not that difficult to call a truck and get them to do it and pick it up today and drop it off tomorrow and coordinate that one motion. 
to process thousands of orders a day for B2C fulfillment, for example, and all the different batching, partial shipments, back orders across multi-site environment and orchestrate what's the lowest and fastest time and cost to ship across that network is immensely complex. And so right. you can't orchestrate that network without robust software at, at the same time. And and I've always felt when I managed a third-party logistics company, I would always say this is somebody said, well, I don't want to work with you. I want to go directly to the carriers. And I would say, I, I understand your desire to do that, but you're doing less than truckload. You're doing some truckload. You do some expedites. You're working with a dozen companies and you want to work with all one dozen of their softwares. And I said, also, by the way, they all have sweet spots. Some of them do certain things better than others, right? <laughs> they, a lot of them won't say no to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's what they do best, right? So I said, I can give you one system and you're kind of doing the same thing. I could go, I can say, look, I'm going to cut stored out of this equation. I'm going to work with directly with eight warehouses around the country. Mm. Good. Good for you. That'll be real convenient. <laughs> you exactly. either develop your own software to manage all that or you or you somehow integrate with their systems. If they even have systems, not everybody does. That's one of the things that's shocking to me. Warehousing people who call me sometimes say, we don't have a warehouse management system. And I was like, and yet they're always talking about, how do I grow? And I know what they want to do. They want to grow so they can have software. I was like, you need software first. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a, a refreshing call to be on. <laughs> yes, just just come to us. Um, this is a refreshing call to be on because I think you and I joked earlier about some of the uh, the Silicon Valley and other investors we have too have been immense for storage journey. But well, in the earliest days, the questions I would get would be, oh, come on, every warehouse has a cloud-based robust warehouse oh, management no, system no. that's easy to integrate <laughs> to on APIs. And I'm, I'm like, no, they don't. I, I, I can't tell you enough. That's not true. And and that's um, the same with it, a lot of trucking, a lot of a lot of brokers even today don't use transportation management systems. It's it's rarer, rarer, but it still exists. There's a lot of guys like that. So you're right. Yeah. And, and even if, uh, let's say you have 15 warehouses across the U.S., Almost all the time when you run into that shipper, they're going to be using 15 different local 3PLs. Maybe there's one company that does two of the locations, for example. But all those WMSs are on-premise, or even if they're cloud-based, it's a different instance per building. So you're still integrating each and right. every time, normally over EDI, back into a complex, oftentimes ERP environment. And it creates this fragile web that if you realize, I don't need my product in Dallas, I need it in Houston, or I need it in Chicago it's really hard to change or costly to change and, and causes disruption. Right. So you mentioned on-premise and versus cloud. Could you explain that to my audience? Not everybody uh, has a chief technical yeah. officer to explain all this <laughs> things to them. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the easiest analogy is the, the early 2000s. If you think back, uh, any software you wanted to stand up, you had to have a server. You had to have a data center or a server or something to host that maybe, program. Maybe on-site. <laughs> on-site oftentimes. Um, and it was expensive. Uh, when you look at back when you had to spin up your own server capacity, just to launch our website, you could be spending $100,000 to, to get a server, put it in your house. You, we were talking about PayPal earlier, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. They used to joke that in the early days of PayPal, Elon Musk's computer would run the website. It would host it and be the server during the day. So all of his coding <laughs> had to be in the middle of the night when they had no customers. But you used to have to on-premise host the computing power for your software until there was Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, the cloud essentially, where now you just plug in and you use their capacity on demand across their network of computing power. And 
the reason we call ourselves a cloud supply chain platform is we're trying to drive the same shift. You can right. go set up your own warehouse, procure your own 3PL, integrate to their local system, sign a, a, an expensive long-term contract, or you can connect to us once and quickly deploy inventory on demand right. where you need it across a, a larger scale network that gives you the flexibility right. you need. And the biggest firms, the, the largest companies in the, you know, the Fortune 500, let's say, the largest shippers in the world, they adopted transportation management systems and warehouse management systems earlier than the small, little guy, right? And so the little guy wouldn't have had even access to these kind of things. And it, to your point, they were on-premise. And if you worked there, and I remember as a, a young person, they would mail you, regular mail, Google it, kids, you see what it is. <laughs> so so you, would get, you would get CDs in the mail and you would have to put those into, a, into the to update. So you would get updates once a quarter and it would update your system and you go, okay, here we go. I'm going to update it. But it was a weird thing. A lot of the companies, the largest shippers in the world are still on on-premise sites. And the reason I say that is I just interviewed Mike Malqueen from uh, JBF Consulting and they helped the transportation man, big, big shippers pick new TMS. And he said a lot of them are still using on-premise because imagine you've done millions of shipments over the last 10 years and it's all on an on-premise site. And the move to the cloud is not always easy. So this is on-premise versus cloud. There's no doubt if you have the choice, you want to be cloud. But that on-premise, there's a there's an adjustment. And you're probably bumping into guys' warehousing systems that are on-premise. Am I wrong? Absolutely. I think uh, any migration to the cloud is just that. It's migration. It takes time. I think Capital One, for example, is one of the first big enterprises to say, we're going to do all of our infrastructure on the cloud with Amazon Web Services. and I think it took them 10 years or 12 years to, to shift all of their infrastructure. It's massive. But but yes, you're spot on. It's, it's either running on-premise to which we can offer better software to that facility, uh, ideally, or a lot of times we see you could even have 3PL central, but you're a local warehouse owner or operator, 3PL. Is the first priority you have to hire an IT team on staff right. to help right. integrate that WMS system into your new customers right. that are massive enterprises with huge IT teams? No. And so when that customer comes to you, you say, uh, I don't know, go talk to 3PL Central on, on how to connect into my local WMS. And so it's this, this, this very complex where I think I go back to one of the core challenges Stored is trying to solve is that you typically go to Manhattan Associates and the supply chain management software industry on one side, and then you go to these logistics providers, your warehouses, your fulfillment centers, your trucks, your last mile on one side, you're trying to stitch them together and they don't interoperate well. And we're trying to say, how could you just fundamentally- And that's not your business either. Yeah. I, I always say, and it's becoming, there's more hybrids and I would call you maybe one of those hybrids. There was the technical guys and there was the operators and the operators who manage warehousing and maybe may, may, trucking companies, freight brokerages, they understood the business in a way that, you know, a technical guy may never understand. But you need to have skill sets from both. You have to have knowledge of both. Otherwise, you're going to end up with some disconnect. Absolutely. And, and we started building very squarely from the logistics side. We said, you can't just take a technology first approach. You, you have to know the warehouses. You have to know how to run a world-class supply chain. Our, our VP of supply chain was building out the same and next day programs and leading transportation at, at Amazon before he joined Stored, for example. We have people from Dozens of people from companies like Coyote, from Convoy, from lar the largest 3PLs out there, but then some of the most forward-thinking engineers and technologists and product managers. And, and you have to combine those two in a seamless way to, 
to really be able to innovate in this space. Right. So now you mentioned you. So I understand what you do. You're, you're you're bringing technology and a platform, a network to shippers and and helping warehousing companies a new revenue stream, <laughs> fill in the empty space. But you mentioned well, maybe when we were prepping that you guys have your own warehouse. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's a great, great, uh, great segue. If I go back to the last stuff, you have to be able to pull the logistics operators and the technology, uh, the technologists very closely together to to work together. What we've realized is that from our genesis, we had only operated this third-party network and building software, both the control tower type software, but also the software for the buildings is really hard when you're totally disconnected. And when we're going across the country, working with hundreds of warehouses saying, here's how you operate for our customer. Let's do some industrial engineering. Let's relay out your, your pick lines to create a better throughput for this customer we need. You want trust. You want, hey, we know this immensely at store because we do this ourselves. And so we said, okay, to build better products, to learn more hands-on and be able to train and kind of back up what we're saying to our warehouses, and also to test automation to so that we can go out to our partners and say, here's how this robotics or this automation might benefit your facility, which robotics is not something you see proliferated yet in the long tail of 3PLs out there because it's capital intensive. Right. We decided ultimately to, in our hometown of Atlanta, where our headquarters is, open a, about a 387,000 square foot fulfillment center that nice. will run live customer volume for stored. We'll have about 75 team members on site that are not warehouse workers in the in doing product, doing operations and, and learning in and around the facility. We'll have a segment for just testing new new models and new softwares that doesn't run live volume. And so it's really an, an innovation center and hub. And we're going to be bringing a lot of our best-in-class operators from across the U.S. Uh, to it over the coming months to say, let's learn from each other and let's let's test new new things and, and see how we can benefit the broader network. So you're actually managing customers out of that location, also. Yep, exactly. So eighty percent of it or so is is going to be running live live stored customer volume in our network, and the rest of it's just learning. So you'll be eating your own cooking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We 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 want to be able to to really back up what we say and the software we tell you to to use third party and, and show you how it works ourselves. No, I love what you said. It's a, it gets back to what your one of your core values is this idea of iterating, right? And if you say, if I don't ever have that in my backyard, if I can't ever go visit a, a warehouse and say, how would this work? What if? You can't do what if scenarios in somebody else's facility, right? <laughs> yeah, I think the, the learn and iterate has been such a core value for stored because I think you just got to do what's best for the customer and your supplier and your partner, in our case, the warehouse and your market. Um, it's easy to get so heads down and, hey, we started as an asset light network. We will never touch a building ourselves and just get this like blinders focus on this is our core. But when you say, okay, what is the next step we could take to, to benefit this flywheel? To What are our customers asking us for? What are warehouses asking us for? And you you iterate and you say, I'm always open to, to new ideas and initiatives. Yep. You, you find these opportunities constantly to just keep pushing forward and We've seen great reception from it from, uh, so far since we announced only a few weeks ago from both customers and and warehouses in our network, and, and we're really excited for it. Excellent, excellent. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So I know when we were prepping, you said you have grown like a weed. How many employees do you have now? Yeah, I think uh, we're about 265 today. We, wow. we started 2020 at about 40 people, and so the last year and a half has been a, a, a lot of hiring and a lot of, a lot of growth here at Stored. Wow, that's fantastic. And you have only been in business six years now. 
they really caught fire. So I want to talk. So, I mean, obviously that's a lot of success. And and when we were prepping, I know you said lots of success and you said something about getting being an entrepreneur is like getting punched in the face. So what was that? What was your quote there? Yeah, I think my co-founder and I have always joked since the earliest days that being an entrepreneur or just in a startup is it's kind of like getting punched in the face every day and just seeing if you can uh, stand up smiling the next day because there will always be a problem and you have to look at it as an opportunity to what do we do to not face this problem again? There will always be a speed bump and you have to say, this is not changing the direction of my my journey. This is just a speed bump today and, and we got we got over it fast. And entrepreneurship is as much about the willingness to start and just go because it's easy to kind of wait for perfection and, and always push it to the future. It's about the willingness to start. It's about the willingness to show up every day repeatedly right. and be resilient as much as it is anything. Yeah. And I think I think it's interesting because when somebody sees this story and they go, oh, this is a young guy. Sean, Sean has done really well. He's got 265 employees and they just started and they're talking venture capitalists and they're opening a facility. It all just sounds like this linear march from, you know, t- from the bottom to the top. And every time I talk to entrepreneurs like you, it always seems like they talk constantly about failure. So how do you have that resilience, that that, that getting punched in the face every day and then saying, I'm okay with it and I'm going to be moving forward? Man, that's a, that's a good question. I think you, you hit it spot on. I mean, we've had some immense growth in, in, in success in the last few years and we've still got a lot to do. I think when you look at it, we, we were number 42 on this year's Inc. 5,000 list, uh, number, number oh, two in the logistics category. Be, be just by a few points by by Molo, they're they're a great company. We've we've raised over 125 million dollars of, of venture capital. We've we, we've done a lot over the last few years, but I think the resilience ultimately has to come from what your goal is and not resting on your laurels. And by that, I just mean if you have a big vision and you're committed to it, no matter how successful we feel in and out of the day, I don't feel successful because I tell our team. We're here and we're going here. We still got a long right. way to go. And All you, you see is the celebrate gap. That. <laughs> exactly. You got you to celebrate that milestone today enough to say it matters and let's keep pushing. Right. But you got to quickly move on and focus on the next one. Otherwise, you get too, too focused on, on the past and you stop, stop pushing forward and you, and you stop being resilient when you, when you already feel like you've won. Right. The next time you get punched in the face, you say, I don't need this versus, right. nope, we got to keep going and there's more to do. So tell me, if you don't mind, about a failure that, or, or a turning point that you guys had then how you dealt with that. And, and the reason I ask that is my, my good friend, Ryan Schreiber, who we were doing these podcasts together, we're talking to founders. He's always interested in is this idea of how do you manage failure? How do you manage that place where, you know, you could have easily just said the hell with this. This is too hard. <laughs> no, no yeah. one loves me. I want to go home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a good question. And, uh, I'll take us way, way back. Uh, we have failures each and every day, but I'll, I'll take us way back and uh, I'll add, maybe add more color to the founding story in some ways. But if I go back, we had we thought there were two problems. One was the kind of virtualization of capacity that Airbnb, Uber, can we bring all this space online? And the other was how do we connect the software most closely into operations? And so we started in the, the Airbnb. And when we started, we started getting customers all over the place. Before we signed that first solar manufacturer, we got more people like maybe yourself saying, hey, I have a garage and I have a boat. Can I rent it out for space or can I store my boat elsewhere? 
And so we were young. We were just getting started. We said, I guess, and let's, let's try it. And, and so we started. What's, and the, and what's first, the difference between commercial and consumer? Yeah, no big deal. We said, let's just give it a shot. And so we started. And, and before we really started stored, when I said we started in October 2015, but we really started more like uh, July 2016, let's call it. Those first six months, we started doing a lot of consumer business. And I said, this is not at all what we set out to build. <laughs> this is not at all what our, our mission and model. And this is not something I'm passionate about. And we got to tens of thousands of dollars of monthly revenue. And we decided to fire all of our customers and move on and say, this is not the right model. Oh, we want to get back move. to the core. <laughs> and we went back to zero. And we went back to zero and then took four months to go get that first B2B customer. Did you have VC, did you have VC money at that point? Uh, we had that first uh, accelerator check, an incubator check from uh, Dynamo and, and Ted Ollie. So did you have to go back to Ted and say, here's what we're thinking? And he said, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, they were they were immense and, and a great partner in it and said, you can always just keep taking that next step in this business. But if this is the mission and, and we got to go big and, and change what we're doing, let's do it. Let's take the step back. And they were great partners in that pivot. But but both making the decision to pivot and those next three, four months where you had no customers again and you were starting from scratch was oh, a, a very gosh. hard time. And there were quite a few times looking at each that's other. A, that's an ego killer. Yeah, especially when you uh, just dropped out of school to do it and more and you say, man, I'm, I'm back to zero and, and you're pushing and pushing. And so there were, there were a few times looking in the mirror right. saying, is this the right thing and more? But uh, yeah, it was just the commitment to, we believe this is the right mission. We believe this is the model we need to build for our customers. We have a lot of life in front of us and, and let's just go, go, go and see what happens. And, and we just kept running. And it was a great feeling when we got that first B2B contract and really started our, our true mission here at Stored. Right. It, it's interesting because I've read some of these books by Ryan Holiday about ego. And one of the things that always seems, you know, that gets in the way of entrepreneurs and gets in the way of everybody is this idea of like, oh, I've got 25 customers and now I'm going to switch gears and not have 25 customers. It feels horrible, I'm sure. But it was ultimately the right thing. And, you know, when you say, I'm going to, I don't want to have to go home and tell my buddies that I just fired all my customers. I have no business. And they're like, what the hell is he doing? I don't want to tell anybody that. So it's good that you were able to have that strength. So one other thing I'd like, lucky or good? <laughs> are you lucky or are you good? I think it takes uh, a little bit of both. I think, I don't know if I support exactly this statement, but I heard someone give an acronym one time that was like, luck is laboring under correct knowledge. And I don't oh, know. I, I don't like know if I that. It's, it's interesting. Wait, uh, laboring I don't know under if, correct knowledge. The, the thing I don't know if I support is correct knowledge versus the iterative knowledge part and, and just learning new things constantly. Yeah, but, but luck has it's a the laboring it. piece. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> But it's the, it's the laboring piece. And, and I say that just as in the, the harder and harder and harder you work, the, the more lucky you will get. I guarantee it. And so we are lucky. I've been immensely lucky in life. And there's been so much luck and happenstance to different customers, investors, all sorts of things. But you wouldn't have had most of those opportunities to be lucky right. if you weren't working as hard as you possibly could and, and, and all hours you could and, and finding those opportunities constantly. Yeah. And, and, you know, being persistent as you were, even as a young, young person, that maybe the luck is you were born with parents who pushed you 
and supported you in a way and you got you into sports and so you learn to compete you learn to grind this is why i'm I'm such an advocate of kids learning in sports because you're kind of forced to and you know they was never a fantastic athlete but i played everything my mom and dad made me play everything and i could never miss a practice and i remember my dad used to say you're never going to play in the NFL or the NHL, <laughs> certainly not the NBA. You're never going to play at that level, but you're going to learn. And I did. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's learning to compete or it's, like I said earlier on education, it's education is learning to learn. Uh, how do you consume new information and try new things? And so it's, uh, you got to try and you got you to gotta push and you got to show up. And uh, I was very lucky my upbringing in, in sports and more. And also I was in front of a computer um, yep. a lot. I Little known fact, but uh, I did online homeschooling for uh, a year and a half um, in in fourth and fifth grade. Very long story, but that was kind of right around that time I was getting started in a lot of these because I spent a lot of time in front of a computer all day right. in the early two thousands, which most most kids didn't. And so there's there's a right. lot of those little lucky lucky items that add up, but you still gotta you still gotta push hard and, and work really hard to make the luck turn into anything as well. Right. So let's switch gears. I want to understand what do you see going forward, first off, for the whole industry, and then what do you see going forward for stored? Yeah, really good question. I think for the whole industry, I think there's maybe two things. I think a big trend is going to be what's optimized. Is it one day? Is it two days? Is it same day? Or do consumers start to want five day because they say, you know what? I want more sustainability. I want less trucks showing up at my house every single day. I want to be able to select my packaging more. We're seeing kind of this balance of sustainability and delivery speed and more reconciled more and more and more in retailers' minds. And so I think having a flexible and visible supply chain is critical to consider any of those those routes. I think that's one. I think the, the real trend, though, is going to be like if I go back to how the pandemic affected stored, for example, in the beginning of 2020, we were getting asked, I just closed all my stores and I have all this inventory coming in. I need to store an immense amount of volume or I just sold out all of my inventory or my stores closed. And now I need to go online. I need to launch fulfillment centers when I've only ever had B2B distribution centers prior. So we saw this immediate need to shift capacity models and more, but now we're getting calls from chief digital officers, chief supply chain officers at the largest retailers out there saying, we need to change our fulfillment warehousing and distribution strategy and stop working with either so many 3PLs or stop signing so many long-term dedicated stand-up right. building for us contract facilities because we need to be more agile and flexible for the future. And so I think if I go back to the Amazon and Amazon Web Services in the cloud, same thing. When, when those first companies started using cloud computing, it was for the peak seasonality needs, the on-demand things. And then they said, actually, my business is more resilient if I put all of my data and processing and storage on the cloud. And I think we're going to see the same trend where the earliest days of stored companies used us oftentimes to solve that three months of peak demand. Today, we s- distribute the majority of your core supply chain for our customers, right. spending millions of dollars a year on, on their, their distribution with us. And in the future, I think we'll see more and more just saying, can you can you take it all? Right. You know, that you mentioned the sustainability. I, I think you're right. We're going to do something. And one of the things, I've said this a few times on my podcast, is that I think at some point we're going to, and this makes sense from a, from the consumer brands, the, the CPGs and the retailers might want to start doing this, is start putting a price of environmental impact on a shipment. So if I say, I absolutely positively need that stapler delivered today. And somebody says, okay, we can do that. And it's 
free shipping, which I always say every time I say free shipping, there's a VC who gets a gray hair. <laughs> but it's not free, damn it. But put that environmental impact. And you know what's interesting? I know our buddies over at Freight Waves, I just had Brad Ganane on my podcast. They're starting to measure what over the road, I think it's carbon they're me- measuring. We can start to measure some of the, that impact. And I think we should. Because there's a lot of people getting things same day, next day, because they can, but they really don't need it. And I think if you start to point out, hey, this is what it costs. And one other thing, Sean, while we're talking about that, maybe you experience some of this. When people buy clothes online, they buy a sweater and they say, I want it in three sizes and two different colors, three, two sizes and three different colors. They try them on like they're at the store and then they ship them back. And I think when we talk about retail, it's 6% returns. And I think online it's 30 some percent returns. So we do have to worry about how we make that. And, and you know, as well as I do, cause I'm sure you manage some, when somebody returns something, they're like, I just put it back in the box, taped it up the best I can. And one of Sean's guys has to open that up and say, what the hell happened here? Yeah. Everyone's favorite returns are the, uh, the clothes, the shoes, the, the other items right. that, uh, you, you probably used before you sit back. Uh, but no, you, you hit it spot on. I think there's a, I, I could get this slightly wrong, but I think it's semi-accurate is I think it was Timberland Boots, for example, said, you know what? If you let us deliver this in a week instead of two days, we'll plant a tree uh, for you. And, and like, in I your love honor, it and as a sustainability push. And I think they saw 21% of consumers, I want to say, buying into the program and selecting to, yeah, delay the shipment a week if, if you're going to do that, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that adds up a lot across a lot of brands and, 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 with more and options. And you that's, see more and, companies saying... And that's on brand for them. I mean... Exactly. And you're seeing more companies say, do you want more sustainable packaging versus our, our kind of best branded box and best experience? Do you just want the most sustainable oh, yeah. and offering these types of these types of things to consumers? And it's what differentiates you. It's what says makes a consumer say, I'm not going to buy this on Amazon. I'm going to go straight to the brand because I want more sustainability, but also flexibility uh, in, in my purchase. And I think... I, I can't predict how all the trends will unfold, but but I think it's a, it's a really interesting trend. We're starting to see more and more retailers and CPGs push behind. Yep. So we didn't t- touch on this, but the majority of your business is with e-commerce? Correct. So we're very omni-channel in nature. Uh, we do B2B, B2C, large item delivery for bed and furniture manufacturers. We we do all, all sorts of wow. items, but where we have the most order processing volume is, is absolutely in direct-to-consumer e-commerce. Yeah, you know what? I, as as soon as I that came out of my mouth, I wondered why I said it because in a lot of ways, I think we'll stop differentiating. I mean, I know understand our processes in the warehouse are different, but when you say to the WalMarts of the world or Targets or whoever, what are you, e-commerce or are you <laughs> retail? It's like we're whatever you need us to be. Well, you can pick it up, exactly. you can order it online, pick it up at the store, you can pick it up at the curb. I know they have all those acronyms. Exactly. However you want to get it. We're going to sell it to you. <laughs> exactly. And even if you are just e-commerce, there's probably a set of your upstream supply chain that's very B2B. You still got to get it from the port to your warehouse to transload it, to get it to your regional fulfillment centers and more. There's, there's still those kind of warehousing and freight are more the building blocks to your B2B supply chain and customs and, and international. But domestically, warehousing and freight and then uh, fulfillment and delivery are, are kind of the two building blocks for your, your yep. B2C and they go very hand in hand. So let's wrap this up. I know I've gone way over my time with you, Sean. I appreciate that. So what's new? What's next for stored? And also what's the sweet spot for you guys? Who do you serve? Yeah, great question. So 
Our customers today are very mid-market and enterprise in and around retail, CPG, and e-commerce. Typically that brand who has a lot of omni-channel complexity. We work with great retailers like Dollar General's, Advanced Auto Parts, Tyson Foods, Home Depot. We work with great fast-growing brands like Body Armor or Thrasio, the largest Amazon acquirer. Very right in our strike zone if you're you're fast-growing or a very complex omni-channel network in that mid-market to enterprise space. What's next for us? It's a, it's a great question. Overall, one of the pieces is building a world-class team. We're, we're 260 now, and uh, I don't think we'll quite hit our headcount plan, but we're trying to end the year in the mid-300s with some really aggressive uh, growth we, we foresee into the peak season this year. But ultimately also is continuing to, to build out our software platform to be more and more agnostic for customers. We haven't touched on it, but we have customers today who will start with storage just software only, using our software just to manage their existing warehouses and fulfillment centers. And so continuing to oh, really nice. build out our, our, our control tower software is, is really critical to us. And then lastly would just be to continue pushing the, the bounds on, uh, on how innovative we can be in the network. We move a lot of volume for customers in a lot of different markets, but we, we did just launch our first uh, fulfillment center ourselves and testing automation, testing better products on site, but also just better processes that can be more scalable. And, and how do you create little micro fulfillment setups, for example, that you can launch in a B2B warehouse if it's well positioned and you need extra capacity? There's, there's all sorts of little things we're, we're, we're testing in partnership with a lot of these brands that we're, we're excited for over the next few years as we continue to push forward our, our cloud supply chain platform and vision here at Stored. Yeah. And if I could say one trend, and I think it's probably a trend that you're well aware of, but I'll just say it anyway, is it seems as if warehouses are getting smaller, but closer to population centers. So we're going to have more warehouses because, because again, consumer, the inventory should be closer to consumers. How does that impact you guys? I imagine that's favorable. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I referenced kind of the, the micro FC setup because we've seen it work really well at Stored. We've set up one pick line in a, in a building or in a, a B2B fulfillment center that if you optimize it right, can use very few square feet, can process thousands of orders a day for a brand and can be very cost effective. And I think historically we saw the, I'm only going to go to the largest contract fulfillment provider and open a million square foot building on each coast. Right. It's going much smaller and much closer yeah. to the customer. And, and I think that trend is, is here to, to stay because proximity and speed matters. Um, proximity is what determines your speed and transportation cost. And so the, the mass facility has some. Inventory centralization efficiencies, maybe, but it doesn't have a, a speed of delivery, a flexibility, and a proximity to customer benefit. Right. And when we talk about the sustainability piece, if I move, let's just say stuff came in the port of LA and then I moved it to Idaho by truckload, and then I put it, if I put it in, in a distribution center, one DC or one fulfillment center close there, and I, I, I hit the whole Idaho as the whole. That last mile is very expensive, and and last miles where a lot of the sustainability or well environmental impact. If I had said, look, I'm going to go to three three or four micros there, and the full truck drop there, the, the, there's less last mile, and when you have less last mile, you have less environmental impact. So the full truck is where it's at. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, I think one metric that like Amazon looks at, for example, is the the average unit distance. You divide the the miles on that truck by how many units that are in it. Right. Uh, the more you can take a truck to the very very close and the very last just one unit, be very short. You get to this. I think Amazon is maybe like twenty five miles per unit through from port to customer on average when you divide right. divide out by units. 
it's hard, but 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 there's there's a lot of efficiencies you gain if right. you if you get that distance optimized. Yeah, and it's interesting if you were to just say what is the the cost per unit up for transportation. The longer I can be on a full truck, the better, right? And then um, environmental impact is the same way. The last mile is forty one percent of the cost, I think, and I think it's thirty some percent of the environmental impact. So if we we can it's keep coming back to we got to get rid of those damn empty miles guys <laughs> so it's it's always comes back to, to empty miles and shipping air <laughs> excellent so what i'll do sean is i'll put a link to your linkedin profile so people can reach out to you there i'll also put a link to stored's website and anything else you give me and i do appreciate you taking the time and going well over our allotted time today no worries. Thanks for bearing with me with the the noise issues. It's so great to be <laughs> yeah, here today. It was lawnmower lawnmower day at uh at your location at mine. Exactly. But no, it's so great to speak with you, and and thanks for taking the time to learn more about about stored my background and, and more. Always happy to, to to share the story, and really appreciate the great questions. Excellent, excellent. Thanks so much, Sean, and thank all of you. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.